Toronto, what have you got for voting for Justin Trudeau? Your, your streets are crawling with crime and chaos. You can't afford the rent. There's division like never before in our streets. Places of worship are under attack. People who've lived there all their lives no longer feel at home. The big cities that voted for Justin Trudeau are suffering the most because of his disastrous and costly policies. This Liberal government doesn't care either. They have been in power for nine years and they don't get it. The Prime Minister doesn't get it. The Liberal Minister for Edmonton doesn't get it. And the 24 Liberal MPs in Toronto don't get it. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. And you heard in that opening from both Pierre Polyev and Jagmeet Singh, what have the feds done for Toronto anyway? Well, as I wrote in a recent post, you can read more at uncommons.ca, this current federal government has provided more support for the city of Toronto than any other. That has meant over $5.5 billion in direct support since 2015, including for transit, housing, the city's shelter system, public health initiatives, and rescuing it from COVID-related operational shortfalls. But don't take it from me. On this episode, I'm joined by Toronto's Mayor Olivia Chow to talk about federal and city cooperation, how she's navigated walking into a very difficult financial situation for our city, and what she's looking to accomplish through her first budget. Olivia, thanks so much for joining me. Hello. I want to set the stage. We saw each other yesterday at an announcement that I want to get to, but I want to set the stage first with the municipal budget, because you came through the campaign saying we were maybe looking at a modest tax increase. You then initially had city staff of yours that, that proposed a 10.5% increase. Some people lost their minds, although other commentators, including conservative commentators, reminded the world that it was really about $30 uh, you know, a month uh, that we were looking at ultimately being increased. But you've now softened the blow, I would say, as now you're looking at a 9.5% increase. Walk us through the why of this budget. What is this budget going to deliver for Torontonians and, and why the increase? Mm -hmm. Well, it's about uh, a dollar a day, in fact, less than a dollar a day. And <clears throat> these days you can't buy a coffee, you walk into the dollar store, you still can't get a whole lot for a dollar. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and what you get from it is Back to the basics, because for far too long, Toronto have uh, sort of ignored the basics. We've taken everything for granted. I inherited a gigantic budget mess. It was the budget deficit was, uh, by the time I put my hands on the budget, um, it was $1.8 billion of shortfall, this gigantic hole. We have to put the city back on track. If not, they will just continue to decline. So in this <clears throat> in this um, budget with the extra dollar increase, uh, you see a back to basic, <laughs> back on track uh, capital budget funds <clears throat> so that the potholes get fixed. Like today, we have 300 staff fixing 5,000 potholes. Okay. We're putting the money in. <laughs> yes, it's important because, you know, as a cyclist, if it rains and, or, or if it's snow covering, you just fly off the bike. You could. Like, or if you're driving, your alignment goes 
go nuts. Oh, and it's a minimum expectation, right? Like, you know, I I want affordability in terms of housing. I want to make sure that services are strong, but there's a minimum expectation of people living in a city that things like potholes are looked after. And if they're not, then people give up. Yeah. But on top of it, from all the consultation we got, people are saying, we need to build housing. You need to deal with the tenants that are facing evictions. The rent is so high. And you. we now have a new term, demoliction, uh, renovictions, and, and people are desperate, right? That's why one in 10 um, people in Toronto are in food banks because the rent is so high. So in this budget, there's a huge investment in building housing. And part of it is the... Uh, the, the, your your government um, supporting us with half a billion of dollars of building 50,000 units of housing, a good number of them affordable. And uh, we're going to be building, 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 building faster and building more. Um, and um, there's a, there's an item in this budget is historic. We're putting in a hundred million dollars for, for a city is a lot of money to help tenants that are feeling really insecure these days, to help buy the buildings because they sure. are using demoviction, renoviction, for example. So they form a land trust or cooperative. They can buy the building. Then they can make uh, their homes um, f- forever uh, rent control um, affordable. Can I ask on the, I want to get some of a specific around the budget in a way, but at, at a high level, and you really emphasize the need for sustainability. You mentioned coming in a $1.8 billion shortfall. I think there's a recognition across the city, across the political spectrum, certainly in the city, that there has just been a deterioration of the city's finances, and there hasn't been that focus on sustainability. You come in and you're really focused on that question. Can you speak to an individual who says, I'm struggling with cost of living and yeah, it might be less than a dollar a day, but at, a, at this moment in time, I'm struggling with the cost of living. We saw a 7% property tax increase last year, now a nine and a half percent increase this year. How do, how do I manage this at the same time as there are these knock on affordability concerns? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a very good question. So if they're seniors or if they're disabled, they, they would be able to get the ta- tax cancellation program. Um and or tax deferral, uh, which is really important for for people. And one out of two Torontonians are tenants. They will not have to pay um in any way, um because we have lowered the multi residential rate, and the multi residential rate is right now uh for. Four plus percent, we've lowered to three point five percent. So the landlord would not be able to go and ask uh, for a rent, big rent hike based on the property tax increase. So it should help. Uh, so fifty percent of the residents in Toronto would not get any uh, impact because they're renters. Gotcha, and uh, and then I th- I would add. I mean, this doesn't apply to absolutely everyone in the city. Certainly those who have purchased a home in the last few years it wouldn't apply to but you're also talking about a situation where toronto historically has low property tax rates in comparison to other municipalities across this province for comparable level of service and 
people have seen windfall gains in their in the value of their homes in many cases. So again, it doesn't apply to more immediate purchasers in the last number of years, but there's there's got to be more flexibility and certainly, you know, maybe not incomes, but certainly more flexibility in terms of the amount of wealth that people amassed in their homes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, if you have friends in Mississauga or, or in Markham, Richmond Hill, uh, their taxes are a lot higher than what you see in the state of Toronto. Um, so it, it, it is true. Um, but for far too long, uh, we have not faced the harsh reality that, well, that if we need the service, we have to pay for it. And that's why, uh, because of the pandemic and also inability to face that reality, we've gone into such a uh, financial budget hole of $1.8 billion. And of course, the city cannot run a deficit, which means that we are emptying out reserves. Our credit rating have dropped from triple A to double A. And people kept saying, look, you know, uh, yeah, I could empty out a, a few more reserve funds uh, and uh, take the tax rate um, down to the rate of inflation. But just that's just not sustainable. It means that next year, probably rather than 1.8 billion, it's going to be like, I don't know, <laughs> it's already uh, over you know, of the roof. But um, the other thing is that <clears throat> when I first came in, when I saw the huge financial problem, <clears throat> I've asked people that uh, could afford more to pay a bit more. So speculators that leave their apartment uh, empty in the middle of a housing crisis, they are paying more. People that can afford big luxury homes, that's about 3% of everyone that buys a, a new home uh, are going to pay more. Uh, and then on top of that, I said to the provincial and the federal government, hey, we need a deal. We need a new deal. And you see that finally, after oh, several decades, we are uploading the Garner and the DVP, which have been uh, on our capital budget. It takes almost half of our capital budget, squeezing us so much that we don't have enough money to uh, fix <laughs> your roads, uh, fix the state. I, I want to get to that. I want to get to that yeah, deal okay. with the province, but but I want to cl first close out this budget conversation with sort of a, a a focus on honesty because it's it's interesting to me. You have successive conservative mayors who attach themselves to this idea of fiscal responsibility as conservatives sometimes. Stop the gravy train and responsible fiscal management, and yet. They've presided over a, deteriora a, a deterioration of our city finances and the sustainability to those finances. And here you are coming in, you know, for described your coming tenure as an unmitigated disaster and suggested that, you know, we'd see taxes. You were quite honest in the campaign. I mean, on the one hand, you said tax increases would be modest. People could maybe quibble with that. But on the, on the flip side, you said very clearly that there was a right way to do this. You were going to go into the city, figure out what the city needs, what other levels of government can provide, and then set the rate accordingly. And there was an honesty that we don't see in politics very often as it relates to budgets. Certainly in the campaign, others were saying things I think weren't entirely honest when it comes to budgeting and their ability to raise taxes or, or not raise taxes. Uh, did you struggle with that honesty in the campaign and, and subsequently just being honest that this is the state of finances, this is what we need to do? And, and it's, it's not always easy in politics to talk about taxes. 
No, it's a totally different approach because it's a people-centered approach rather than obsessing with a figure. That figure, that percentage is artificial. I want to put people first. So uh, in the fall, I went to ask people what matters to you most. And then I opened up the city hall and opened up the entire budget process and just say, here's our problem. Here's how much we pay for the police, the TTC and and the shelter. Those are a billion plus each. Uh, Shelter is about 800 million. And basically uh, told over uh, 40 plus thousand people participated in the entire uh, conversation. Uh, We're going to do more, but... uh, and then after we done the what matters to you most, then the question is how much is the federal and the provincial government can support us? Then we after that, then we come to a figure. In the past, it's always been driven by some artificial figure and driving it and not facing reality. You can't, exactly. yeah, you can't continue to avoid facing the hard choices. I, and if you don't make a good choice and just dodge it every time, then it, it makes it so fiscally irresponsible in my in my books. So uh, which is why I basically said, this is what I'm going to do. This is the process. I was hounded during the election as to what percentage, how high? Yeah, exactly. I remember. I remember that? Yeah. <laughs> Every every all candidates meeting, every <laughs> conversation, it was like, what's the percentage? How high is it? Is it thirty five percent? You're like jacking. Yeah, you're like, I don't know yet. I'm gonna figure it out. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just telling the truth, folks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I say about the honesty. It's it's hard. It's hard in a campaign to maintain that honesty, but. I, but I, I I do appreciate it. And now now let's let's I want to drill down another moment of honesty because you you are uh, you've mentioned the need for affordable housing and investments there. You mentioned some more progressive ways of raising money in terms of looking at the wealth in 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 particularly high value homes. You've talked about the need to fix and and the state of good repair in our city, which I think is important across party lines. Safety though, so we've seen. One, I think, a focus on reliable transit and safety in transit in your budget. Uh, but the police are are squawking and they're saying, hang on a second. We asked for $20 million. We're only getting 7.4. What they don't say is it's a $1.2 billion budget and the differential between what they're asking for and getting is 1% of that budget. And so it's 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 at the margins. But but they are they've launched more of a campaign than they ever have in years past to criticize your administration for not funding them. Uh, how, how do you manage that safety conversation in an honest way when the cops are saying what they're saying? We need to look at safety in a holistic way. Nate, you probably remember Andrea Magalise, who lost her son, yes. Gabriel. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and this is in Kiel Station. Her son was stabbed to death, 16 years old. It was heartbreaking. And I remember I went to her, uh, the the candlelight visual, her her cries, her her despair, her, her uh, wailing. It was just... Um, uh, and it just it's it sears in your soul but she said in that depth of darkness said that we need to take better care of each other so that we could avoid people in that kind of crisis situation then they wouldn't be out causing other people harm i also heard from a lot of mothers that have lost their son in gun battles 
Some of these are Somali mothers. They call themselves um, healing the crack in the sky. And she and they tell me that they want a stronger community. They want after-school programs for their kids. They want young people to have a purpose in life. And that's what we're doing in this budget. We are uh, in the emergency service side. We have a 24-7 new Toronto community crisis team that would provide um, care and support for people experiencing mental health crisis. So rather than sending a police officer, we're sending this team that would do the follow-up. They are well-trained. And <clears throat> that's another form of safety. We are funding the ambulance, the fire, and the police. A uh, hundred more of uh, all of the above, but just the police, police officer alone is 200 more officers, uh, both uh, civilian and uniform. But coming back to the concept of safety, it's important we build strong neighborhood. So in this budget, we are providing grants to these amazing uh, agencies that are all across Toronto, especially in priority neighborhoods where you see gun, gun violence, so that these small agencies, very grassroots, can get support because they fundraise, they, they bring volunteers in, they know how to build stronger community. It's grassroots and it's not top-down approach. We're providing them with support, more support. And we are putting, we in this budget, $2 million more for young people in these neighborhoods so that they could learn the skills, they could have something to do after school, and, it, and they hired local kids that can be role model for, for young people so they could get certificate, whether they're lifeguard, ring guards, uh, camp counselors, these would provide good employment opportunity for them. And, and in turn, they could be role model for the younger kids in their neighborhood. We know it worked. Um, it's just not gotten the kind of financial support in the past. They're not fancy stuff. They're not fancy uniforms, fancy everything, um, but it works. I want Nate, you to look at Regent Park. Last year, no gun death. You know how how incredible that is. You've heard about Regent Park, right, Nate? You've heard, about, yeah, you heard about gun violence and all that in the past. We have transformed that neighborhood in the past, and that's the model that we are taking to different other neighborhoods, so that we could have mixed income housing, stronger neighborhoods, stronger community more activities for young people. That's the approach that we need to have for safety. It's not just about giving more money to the police. And it's, one, a, it's a challenging political conversation sometimes, but it is well, a longer term and more holistic view of, of what healthy neighborhoods and safer neighborhoods are. Yeah, but Nate, already two out of $10, that's a fifth of your money goes to the police. It's $1.3 billion budget. They are getting a 600 
uh, pardon me, $60 million increase, 60, six zero million, plus a million, uh, sorry, plus dollar, um, uh, a reserve fund put aside because their police, uh, it, it's about to go into negotiation. They will want, because of inflation, some kind of salary increase. And that's already in the city's budget. Protected, so it's a huge amount of money that they are already increased. Okay, so it's not a cut; it's an increase. The question is: Is sixty million enough? They're saying no; they want another twelve. So that's where we're going to be debating on uh, on February tenth. And uh, and where you won't be debating, you won't be debating the federal impacts levy. And for those who haven't who haven't followed along, so at some point in this process, Budget Chief Shelley Carroll had been out there in the public saying, well, if the feds don't come through with dollars for the shelter system because of an influx in, in asylum seeking, we're going to have to impose, I think it was a, the threat was sort of like a 6% or 6.5% federal impacts levy. That will be 0% because we were standing together yesterday and you were announcing alongside Christia Freeland that there's 160 some odd million dollars coming from the federal government to the city, 143 million specifically for the shelter system to accommodate and support all vulnerable people, but but because of the influx in asylum seekers in the shelter system and, and the stress on the capacity in that regard. What do you make of the last number of weeks? You got asked this question, Christia got asked this question quite a lot yesterday, but around the you know, Shelley Carroll started it off with the sort of threat of the federal impacts levy. We had anonymous quotes from colleagues saying that they were furious at your office. Your office had some anonymous quotes, you know, chirping back. Yvonne Baker did his media tour, calling it a shakedown and everything else. And he was quoted yesterday by some reporters. How do you describe the federal city relationship in your short tenure so far? It's fine. It's fine. It's what gets said doesn't matter at the end of the day. Um, <clears throat> the partnership has always been there. In the past, uh, <clears throat> especially during the very difficult COVID period, um, the federal government have stepped up, provided support, and um, the the uh, on on housing. Um, there have been a rapid housing initiative to build supportive housing for people that need the most, wraparound services, street-to-home services. So uh, child care, national child care program, a lot of invest investment there so that parents don't have to pay so much anymore. Um, there have been environmental flood protection, um, electric buses, and also uh, <clears throat> electric streetcar, um, and uh, transit. The building of the Scarborough subway, the Eggington Crosstown, all of that is one-third federal funds, one-third provincial, and one-third uh, municipal. So there had been a lot of cooperation. Now, uh, last year, we had the by-election. Uh, we didn't have a mayor for a while. Uh, we had a deputy mayor, so there was a break. And um, I suspect that during this kind of transition, there might have been misunderstanding. Um, the When I first got elected last July, 
the prime minister, your prime minister said, um, Mary Chow, here is 97 million to help you with the refugees funding. I said, wow, great. Um, but uh, prime minister, the 97 million worked perfectly uh, a few months ago, but now because there's huge dramatic increase of refugees, we need a bit more. So perhaps I looked as if I wasn't grateful or, <clears throat> or that, <laughs> I don't know, or, or that, well, I didn't know all the previous um, uh, partnership, right? Because I'm brand new. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just walking in and here's this financial crisis. 1.5 billion, 1.8 billion dollar budget. <laughs> Everybody said, go get money. I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> so, seriously. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So I keep asking, I keep asking. And as people are sleeping on the street, things got cold and wet and rainy the church opened the door and it just it was high profile and everybody was desperate so i was desperately asking please we need it we help we help and as as the staff kept saying oh my god the numbers keep going up by the end of last year it was 200 million and and the staff was saying and the numbers are kept kept going it was first it was uh one uh one out of four homeless people were refugees then one out of three then now one out of two now more than half we now have six thousand refugees in our shelter system in our shelter system of eleven thousand i thought wow so we just got desperate we just did not have the money to, to pay, right? And we don't know how high is going to go. We have no control over how many refugees would come into Canada. And in sheer desperation, our financial staff said the, the cost this coming year in 20, well, now 2024 is 250 million. And if you divide, like it's about $41 million per, per 1%. Then it's about 6%. Boom. Then everybody goes, whoa, that's a lot. <laughs> that's what happened, right, Nate? I, I, I have to admit, I, I was laughing because uh, I wrote a post to say, you know, can't we just get along? Because in the past, we've always written these checks. And, and we should clarify, you know, the refugee system is an orderly one. The asylum seeking, seeker system is not because... Uh, you know, refugees are UNHCR designated. There's a formal process that they come through, and there are very few of any ref refugees proper that would be on the streets. But but asylum seekers, there are thousands of people. We've seen an influx, thousands of people that come through Quebec in other ways, and they many come to Toronto. And you're right to point out that Toronto has borne the brunt in many ways, and that's why you see also money going to Quebec. But there are certain areas and geographies that have borne the brunt of asylum seekers finding finding their homes and with, when there aren't enough homes and, and, and vulnerable people that are already vulnerable, in many cases, fleeing persecution. I should say not always. Sometimes they have invalid asylum seeking claims and, and the answer there is is a removal order. But in many cases, they're fleeing persecution and violence and uh, and and fear, and they're finding their way to some kind of safety. And so, our jobs as Canadians is to make sure we we provide that safety, and that requires 
federal cooperation with the city. So so initially I thought, you know, this check's been written before. It's going to get written again. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of time. And so when I saw the public fighting, I thought this is unhelpful because we have a track record of working together. We're going to continue to work together. So I was quite I was quite thankful for yesterday because I, th- I think we returned to a sense of cooperation. And I hope mm-hmm. that sense of cooperation, collaboration just continues from here. Oh, I'm sure it will, because I think it was just rocky first steps uh, yeah. for rookie mayor. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is, I think. But it's funny, too. But you say that. And then you, you're, uh, there's a there's a charm, too, to this, because uh, you were described by Ford, as I said earlier, as an unmitigated disaster. And yet there you are standing side by side with Doug Ford, announcing a new deal for Toronto Doug Ford is all smiles, giving you a ton of money, uploading the DVP in Gardner, which he denied he would ever do in the course of the municipal campaign when you and others raised the idea, and providing significant sums of money. So h- how did that come to be? What, what was the what was the trade-off for Toronto? Obviously, you had to give in a little bit on Ontario Place, which can't have been the easiest conversation. Uh, but how did you manage that relationship and, and move from unmitigated disaster to, to all smiles? Well, I just... Basically, work with him and found common ground. He loves the city. He is from Etobicoke. He lived here all his life. His, uh, he'd been a councillor. He always he, wants to be the mayor. That's his dream job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. We ran You've got his dream together. job, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we ran the campaign together in 2014, got to know each other. Uh, And uh, he got to know me as a design district shooter. I say it like it is. And he does too. Uh, So he saw our financial problems. He understands that uh, it's a structural problem. And so we just talked. He said, look, I I get it. I said, thank you. Um, (laughs) And how how do we do this? And then uh, the rest was details. Um, well, was it tough to give up Ontario Place, given the the nature of the campaign and how much that means to some of your base? I didn't give up on it. I didn't change my position. I still oppose the private spa. I did not give any land. I did not give any uh, planning approval. I basically said, okay, well, you, uh, the province, um, you you have the power to do what you need to do, and um, which they did. They they confiscated, well, they expropriated is the proper word through legislation, and they um, overrode our planning process because our planning process wasn't finished yet. We did not say yes or no at that point. And they said, well, never mind. We made a decision. Um, I've checked with our legal department. We really didn't have any legal means to fight back. Uh, Nature, you might have recalled, we we lost half of city council in the middle of the election. <laughs> yes. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, the numbers, yeah. boom, all of a sudden got cut by half. And yeah. Went all the way to Supreme Court and all the way, you know, back to. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. Cities are the creature of the province. There's nothing yep, you can do. You're lost. Yep. So I thought, okay, am I going to spend? Oh, let me use the, a better word. Am I going to waste taxpayers' dollar again to, yeah. to do a legal challenge 
if they expropriate land? No, because it will lose. We'll appeal. We'll lose again. Uh, we could uh, do an injunction. Sorry, you're going to lose again. Uh, we, <laughs> we can challenge them in court about the Planning Act. Well, we will lose too. So <laughs> we'll take it up to Supreme Court. Nope, sorry, we will lose. So at the end of the day, let's just be realistic here. Uh, yep. Yeah, you know, let's not waste taxpayers' money fighting a battle that we won't win. Um, so that's exactly what I did. And do you think it's realistic when you look at that new deal as described with the province, the, the feds have taken a different approach, which is more piecemeal by the looks of it. I mean, you're talking $5.5 billion into Toronto since 2015. It was, you know, the longstanding annual figure under Harper was, you know, it got up to $200 million. We continued that for the first few years, and then it really started to increase in, in 2018. And Christy was saying this year's figure of direct investment is over $1.5 billion. It's significant, and yet there's no new deal with, with the feds. So we're looking at $471 million coming in for the accelerator. You're looking at $200 million last year to support the shelter system due to asylum seekers, more money obviously coming this year. Now you're going to have to have renewed conversations with Christia and the federal team to figure out what your allocation is post April of this year with, with the, with the new fiscal year for the feds. Uh, mm -hmm. As part of that, I assume you'll be looking for other federal dollars. Is mm -hmm. there the prospect of a, of a new deal with the federal government? Yes, there is because the new deal table is continuing. Um, we knew that that new deal was only two months. And the federal government came in, your deputy minister of finance joined in, um, in the last month, but it was just for the federal government, it was only one month, right? So yep. you can't really make, <laughs> make financial arrangement that quickly. And, uh, but the tables still exist. And there have been and will be, and I would love to make sure that it is ongoing, and I'm fairly sure it will be, so that um, it could be in a package form rather than piece by piece. I think that is to best advantage to everyone, and um, so that it, it is not all, a lot of energy back and forth. Um, we need subway cars, the, the blue line. The federal government provided funds for the young subway cars. And young subway cars and bluer subway cars, <laughs> they are still the same subway cars. And we've always had a uh, tripartite agreement where the city has a third and the province have a third and the federal government has a third. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could just all agree of that principle? We obviously need it because the, the car is falling apart. The life was well, not falling apart, but the lifespan of it is quickly approaching, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, we need to re have new ones. So, um, so there are a lot of these kind of small, big items. It would be best if we could just discuss it at the New Deal table. And, um, and knowing the financial constraint that every level of government is facing, perhaps what we could do is explore other means of uh, 
getting new revenue into the city because we know it's not sustainable with 9% of all the tax you pay, uh, only 9% comes to city of Toronto. We just uh, structurally again um, cannot manage and yes, we are beginning to get back on track, but still, we're not there yet. So this conversation is critically important, and I hope I could continue to have that with your finance minister and your team. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy to continue to engage on that front, too. I've always thought, by the way, I mentioned this when Tori was still kicking around and he joined me on the podcast. Uh, I do think we should have, in the same way that you looked at land transfer taxes in a progressive way, I think we should be looking at property taxes in a progressive way. And yes, there's agree. a difference between a $1 million and $4 million home and the ability to pay on, on those homes on an annual basis. Of yep. course, you're restrained from doing that unless the province enables that kind of taxation power. Uh, yep. Similarly, yep. and to your point, I think if you're looking at sustainably financing municipalities that increasingly, you know, so many services are downloaded, including especially housing, you're, you're really looking for you know, what we used to call the gas tax fund, and, and you're looking for more sustainable revenue tools. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And uh, that community, it's gas taxes now has a new name, <laughs> community, yeah, exactly. uh, fund, so community building fund or something of that nature. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's important, but uh, that would be ongoing. But it's still, it's still a stopgap. It, it doesn't grow with the economy. Um, because gas tax, by and large, shouldn't be growing. <laughs> uh, so, so there have to be other forms of uh, possibility. Um, <clears throat> I know the Canadian uh, FCM, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, uh, will soon have a proposal to the federal government. Uh, th this will represent all the municipalities from coast to coast to coast, and yeah. they would have suggestion as to how uh, how we could put municipalities, especially big cities, in a financially secure footing. Um, there's been discussion about possibly income tax and etc. There, so there there are a host of different mechanisms. Yeah, that that's. I'll, 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 I'll look to that. Yeah, when that comes out, I, I'll I'll look forward to engaging on that because that, that's that is sort of I think that's a critical conversation just in terms of putting municipalities, especially large municipalities, on a fiscally sustainable footing. And, and and not only I mean there are so many areas you talk about transit, we can talk about housing, but even you in the campaign have sort of rightly articulated the challenge. Mental health is the concern of the province. Shelters are run by the city. The feds come in with capital dollars here and there. And how do we make sure we're on the same page to address housing, homelessness, mental health, make sure that we're replacing encampments with actual homes and, and addressing concerns in that way and in a, in a fair and, and, and compassionate way. And so, yeah, there's, there's lots of areas to collaborate, but it's got to mm -hmm. be sustainable finance. Yes, absolutely. If you think about the crisis we face in the mental health, it's just the pandemic really knocked us back, especially young people. And um, the, the Toronto Community Crisis uh, Service that we provide is 24-7, you know, three, a 211 response. Um, 
that's 100% through your property tax, but uh, it, it's all about mental health, right? And we shouldn't be in the health area, or if we are, we should be supported. But the federal transfer to the provincial transfer uh, doesn't come to the city. The same thing with uh, carjacking, for example, I'm just using that example, um, is local municipality, our, our police that deal with that, uh, but it's the federal to the provincial transfer. We're not part of it. Uh, Anti-hate situation, well, again, dealing with that crime, uh, again, is municipalities. Uh, so a lot of your bilateral agreements um, it goes from the feds to the province, and then we who deliver the service are sort of we have no say whatsoever, which which is a bit of a structural problem also. Um, so, uh, in terms of the big increase, uh, is is childcare services, and <clears throat> so the you have an agreement with the provincial government, with the federal government, and but the cost of childcare services have gone up. Uh, so then if the province don't support us adequately, then then some of the centers are having trouble managing. So it's uh, it's uniquely Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good it's a good segue into a more personal question that I have for you because you interestingly, I mean, you haven't occupied you haven't occupied provincial office in the course of your career, but you have occupied a number of different offices at different levels. So you started as a school board trustee in the mid nineteen eighties. You then moved to municipal politics as a councillor, first on Metro Toronto Council when that existed, and then obviously on Toronto City Council for I think overall I think it was uh, you know 14 well over fourteen years. Okay, yeah, yeah. and then. And then you served as an MP for uh, eight years. And so you have served at the municipal school board trustee level, at the municipal level, at the federal level, and then back now to the municipal level. And have you lessons learned on different ways of doing business in, in, in different in different at different levels of government? And are you better equipped now as mayor, having lived at the federal and municipal levels to understand both the challenges but opportunities in that kind of cooperation? I think so. Uh, knowing how how things work in Ottawa, <laughs> uh, how laws are put together, how the budget and the supplementary <laughs> and all the process and what Treasury Board and the financing. So I'm quite familiar with all of that. Um, give me a insight. And um, during the time I was in Ottawa, some of them are in minority government, others are majority government. So because I have experience with uh, uh, different levels of government and different forms in, in parliament, both minority and uh, a majority government, one thing I learned in all levels of government is to connect with your colleagues, no matter which party, in a way that find common ground. We could be in the House of Commons going at each other, so to speak. But after after question period, let's talk about what we can do together. So for example, Jason Kenney and I, he was the immigration minister at the time, we 
in terms of ideology, we are quite different. We're on the opposite side of the spectrum, so to speak. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but we found common ground um, on, for example, cracking down on uh, immigration consultants that are unscrupulous, that are exploiting the people that are very vulnerable. It's fascinating, my experience federally, but this is from the back bench, and I imagine in the, in the in your case, in the opposition, it's not dissimilar in that you're constantly having to find allies to build coalitions to get things done. Yes. And it's a, a very, you know, it's an extension of your work that was previously, uh, you were undertaking on council. And now as mayor, you're back in the same spot. You're having yep. to build things from, a, from now, from a, a pedestal that you didn't have before, but building coalitions to get things done where you don't always see eye to eye on everything. Nope, exactly. And, um, John Baer, for example, um, I seek his help to protect the beautiful uh, Nahani River, the headwater. He was the environment minister. And we were able to get that done when I was an MP. And then when, um, as a mayor, I, I seeked him out and said, I need your help to connect with the conservatives. And he said, yes, I could provide support and give you advice. And he had been able to do so. So um, that's really quite helpful. So um, at the end of the day, it's, it's finding the common ground, being allies, and not take things so personally. Because what we say in public, like, I've been called unmitigated disaster, as you pointed out, but you know that's in the middle of the election. Um, it it just get over it and look at what needs to be done, um, because we're there really for people, not to stroke our ego. Which, which you know, it's nice to be the mayor, but it, it at the end of the day, what have I accomplished? Uh, what have I done? That's so much more important than how I've seen I'm seen or whatever. It's just so. Uh, um, I like you're basically saying, look, some things are all in the game, and you don't let it get to you. And how do you work together to get things done for people? That's that's the biggest yep. question. Yep, that's and very basic. Do you do you like municipal politics or federal politics, one or the other more? If if you could choose one, you're obviously back municipal, but. Uh, given the less partisan nature of municipal politics, do you prefer it? I like both. <clears throat> They're very different. Um, I, I'm not that. I, I like to form allies and and come and and find common ground. Uh, but you can do that in the House of Commons too. Uh, I wish more people would do that. I, I mean, I'm seeing it happening more. But uh, so. Perhaps um, I I now have the municipal file, so you know uh, uh, I love my job, and I think my experience have been able to uh, give me a, a fairly good perspective on how I could um, serve the people of Toronto better. Um, so I'm always open for suggestions on how I could improve. Um, and how I could need uh, connect better with your 
colleagues, for example, uh, so that uh, they can continue to be the strong advocates for City of Toronto as they have been. Well, I appreciate that. And, and my last question for you is uh, more of a personal one, which is you've been in politics for really a lifetime now. And in the 2014 campaign for mayor, which you were unsuccessful in, when you reflected on that, you pointed to the fact that other people were writing your speeches. You didn't necessarily embrace the idea of authenticity in a way that you have maybe in the past and that you currently and that you currently embrace. This past campaign, you were very clearly yourself and you were comfortable as yourself in your own skin entirely. And how how do you manage that question of you want to win? You got a bunch of advisors around you. But did that lesson from 2014 loom large in, in the recent campaign? And, and do you just sort of feel free now having won an election in the most authentic way that you're just going to keep down this path and, and be who you are? Politics be damned. <laughs> well, it, learning from failure. <laughs> it, it's really failure is a great teacher. I mean, it, it sounds like a slogan, but it's actually really true. And... I went and uh, I went back to school. I went to Harvard uh, and connected back to an old friend, Marshall Gans, who is a professor there, and uh, got two certificates from his courses on the impact of public narrative uh, on how to really tell stories in a way that connect people, connect people then can then service the, uh, what is our value that connect us as human beings? And if we share the same value, then let's say justice or uh, generosity of spirit. If we share that, then how could we find narratives that are uh, genuine, sincere, heartfelt stories about ourselves that connect to others because we have to ask why um, why am I passionate about what I do and um, what else if I am only for myself? Uh, what am I right And then if not now when? The first line of it, if uh, if I'm not for myself, who am I? Right? So that's a, 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 a early Jewish scholar um, thinking. And that is the core of it. So who am I? Why do I do what I do? And how do I connect with you and to others that are involved uh, and to the public? And then let's take action because it's the urgency of now that we have to take action together. And I created a uh, institute to teach this kind of um, a new way to do politics. It's connecting with each other through genuine narratives. And, uh, and I learned a great deal in the time that I was away from the political scene. And when the opportunity, and I wasn't going to run, or I was very happy <laughs> with the the work I was doing, doing the teaching I was doing at uh, TMU and the institute. 
And, but when the opportunity came forward, I said, okay, um, let me give it a try. And it seems to have worked. People seems to have, uh, I was able to connect with people. And I think in politics, it's important for us to uh, be genuine and be and, and look at why we do what we do and look at immediately what we can do together. And it's always together. It's not just me. It's all of us, um, all of us doing it together. It would, that means we're that much stronger. So that is basically my political philosophy and hopefully it will continue to serve me. Well, I appreciate the emphasis on the word genuine because I think trust is everything in our democracy and you don't capture trust in a way that you need to in our democracy without authenticity and, and a real genuine approach. And in politics, we talk about narratives and what, what narrative, but if it's not a genuine narrative, how are you going to build trust and, and get the things done you need to get done for people and bring people along, connect with people uh, w without that trust? So uh, that's to say, I look forward to continuing to work together. And I appreciate how open you've been. I appreciate how connected you've been to our 416 caucus. You know, I think, you know, despite the war of words, maybe a few months ago, I think there's a genuine desire to work together, certainly on my end. And I think I speak for my colleagues. So I, I look forward to that work together and I look forward to staying in touch. And thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. As you can hopefully see, the tensions played up in the media between the mayor's office and liberal MPs, named or unnamed, are not tensions that I share. It's not easy to enter the mayor's office with a difficult financial picture, and I certainly respect the honesty in Mayor Chow's approach so far. I now I've started to write more at a substack that we've moved to uncommons.ca, so you can check out both the podcast, but also subscribe to regular posts and monthly updates. Reach out with ideas, of course, anytime at info at bey8.ca. And otherwise, until next time.